The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Hello, everyone. I would like to welcome everybody to the City Commission Chambers for our Committee of the Whole meeting on this lovely Tuesday, June 21st. So I want to officially call this meeting to order and ask our clerk to please call the roll. Commissioner Decker. Commissioner Hess, present. Commissioner Hoffman, present. Commissioner Juarez. Commissioner Prado, present. Vice Mayor Cooney, present. Mayor Anderson, here. Uh, thank you so much. May I have a motion to excuse Commissioner Juarez and Commissioner Decker? So moved. Second. Made by Commissioner Hess, supported by Commissioner Hoffman. All in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed, nay. Motion passes. Next on our agenda is communications, and we are blessed to have Deputy City Manager here sitting in for our City Manager, Jim Ritzma. Thank you. Uh, I have the privilege of turning it over to Assistant Chief and Interim DEI Director, Victor Green. Um, he's going to introduce some special guests we have today, Urshad Manji and Jeff Brenneman. We're going to talk very briefly about the Moral Courage Project that you all approved uh, earlier this Fine. Yeah, we yes. are. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you, Deputy City Manager uh, Lamb, Mayor, Vice Mayor, and City Commissioner. Um, we're excited to announce the partnership that we have, and as Acting Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Officer, I'm excited to uh, talk about this training that we got coming up. Uh, as you know, when I took over about a month ago, we started looking at what is the DNI plan, what is the DNI strategy that we have, not only for the third quarter, but also at the beginning of the fourth quarter this year. So we're going to talk about this training. One of the things that we heard from the assessment and the survey from our employees here in, in Kalamazoo is how do we even begin to have these more difficult conversations? 
we know when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, diversity is, is uh, defined very broadly. Equity, we talk about equalizing everything. But more importantly, when we talk about inclusion is how do we have a sense of belonging? So we heard our employees. We heard them from the survey. We heard them from the many talks. And we found a training and a partnership we think that gives us one of the tools to have these difficult conversations. Now, we got many trainings this prepare it in the future, but the Moral Courage Project is one of the most exciting. Not, I don't know any other municipality in this country is talking about this type of training. And more importantly, we got one of the best universities in the country, Western Michigan University, to, with their partnership that we have. So I have with me today um, two people, uh, Vice President Jeff Brenneman, who is the Vice President of Government and Community Affairs. We also have the founder and the visionary person, um, Ishard, um, who is all, Ishard Manji, who is also going to go into more um, explanation. But before I turn this over to Vice President Jeff Brenneman, I just want to thank the commissioners on your vision that you had um, a couple commissioners back ago. You saw the vision. You approved the funding to make this happen for fourth quarter of this year. So we're slated to have this training. I'm very excited about this training. And I will now turn this over to our partner, our colleague, Western Michigan University, Vice President Jeff Brenneman. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be in front of you again. Uh, I'm here often in different roles uh, as we have this partnership between the university uh, and the city. Today, I'm proud to be here, and what we were discussing earlier is the role of convener, that the university plays the role to convene uh, not only our uh, university community, but the, the larger community. And so I, I just want to say we, we started an initiative a couple years ago called We Talk, and you can find out more about it, wmich.edu slash we talk. Uh, and it was really meant to try to bring together people across differences. How do we talk to each other across our differences? How do we celebrate viewpoint diversity? How do we understand that free speech is difficult and that it's hard? Uh, but in a university, we don't have any uh, other choice other than to celebrate free speech. And as a part of that program, uh, we brought in as our first major speaker, uh, this lady here. Uh, she came uh, to us last year, Irshad Manji, uh, uh, is a part of our first speaker, uh, our major speaker that we brought in last September. She was fantastic. She spent a couple days on campus, not just a speech and leave. Uh, she was a couple days on campus talking with a lot of uh, community groups, community organizations, faculty, staff, student pizza parties, uh, and it really resonated with a lot of people. And she was invited back to the community uh, again in January and then invited back again. So as that role as a convener, I hope that we've, uh, we've created an opportunity for a larger partnership uh, that, can, that can really make a difference in our community. So with that, please let me introduce Irshad Manji. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much, Jeff. And thank you, Assistant Chief Victor Green. I'm uh, thrilled to be back in Kalamazoo. This is not my first visit, nor, God willing, will it be my last visit. And what brings me back is um, we are, uh, as an organization, the Moral Courage Project has chosen Kalamazoo as the site where we will be uh, having a boot camp for individuals who wish to become mentors of moral courage. Kalamazoo has become very special to my heart. 
I want you to know, and I don't say this lightly. You know, I live in New York City. I have lived in Los Angeles. I have lived in Toronto. I have lived in Hawaii. Only in this city have I experienced a can-do spirit that has disappeared from many parts of the coast. So for me, launching an experience called Diversity Without Division right here in Kalamazoo makes utter sense. Because this is where we can actually create a model of training that equips people from various backgrounds and aspirations and priorities and needs to learn how to communicate about highly emotional issues in a way that is constructive. When people have those skills, anything can be solved. But before diving into the what, we need to develop the capacity to listen, listen to uh, understand, instead of listening to win, to ask sincere questions, not judgmental ones, to create common ground rather than merely find it, to reduce our own anxieties as we enter into interactions that frankly could go sideways because we are, after all, human. So when more people have these skills, which are the skills that diversity without division teaches, what we get is not merely diversity, equity, and inclusion. We get all of that. But we also get something more than equity. We get empathy. And as a result, people learn that we don't have to get stuck in an either or mindset that both and is eminently possible. And as a result of demonstrating that right here in Keizu, this city's culture of innovation, actually its tradition of innovation, then gets extended for the 21st century for an entire country that is desperate to know how we can come to engage with one another again. Frankly, how we can come to love one another again. These are the starting steps that we're going to be taking later this year in providing diversity without division as an inclusion program for city employees. And let's not underestimate the possibility of making this so practical, so pragmatic, so scalable that other cities in the heartland can realize they too can be players in creating and participating in a bottom-up approach to unifying this country. We don't need to wait for the coasts, and Lord knows we don't need to wait for Washington. It's up to us. Kalamazoo, you have the vision. You've given the funding. You have our gratitude. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much. DCM Lamb, anything else on this topic? No, I think that's a great note to leave it and move on. Thank you. Okay. I also I want to thank you for being here and uh, letting us know that this work is coming forward. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the partnership with Western Michigan University. And thank you, AC Green, keeping this work going forward. And we are looking forward to uh, really heart-changing work here uh, going forward from this. So thank you again. Anything else for communications, DCM Lamb? Not at this time. Thank you. Thank you. So now is the opportunity for public comments for this Committee of the Whole meeting. Uh, there will, we will first accept comments from individuals who are here in the chambers. You'll have three minutes. You can come forward. Give two minutes. I'm sorry. Yeah, Committee of the Whole is two minutes. Uh, please come forward. Give your name and whether you live in the city. And if there's uh, anyone in the chambers wants to do that, we'll go ahead. Yes, please. And then after that, we will accept phone-in. Is that correct? Uh, do you mind at this point, I don't have the phone number right here in front of me, uh, DCM Chamberlain, do you mind giving us that? Sure, the phone number for call-in comments is 888-382-9556. And you should call in now if you are Yeah, interested. people can go ahead and call in right now and we'll take their calls after any in-person comments. Thank you, DCM Chamberlain. Yes, please. Yes. Uh, hello, I, my name is Linda Miller, and I've um, wanted to attend for a while now in regards to the homeless um, problem here in Kalamazoo. Um, my mother is a lifelong resident and still live, lives in the house um, for almost 70 years now on the And um, I take care of her. Um, a lot of the time, and um, I've seen a real decline in the uh, appearance of Kalamazoo and problems with the homeless. Um, and as, as Kalamazoo history sh has shown the last few years, it gets out of hand really quick. Um, when we had the problem in Bronson Park, when we have, had the encampments near the river, um, and I, um, myself, call the police quite often when I see an encampment going up, um, tents where they shouldn't be, people and junk where they shouldn't be. And um, I've called quite a few times on the Jack Coombs Trailway that uh, meanders around by the Kalamazoo River and, and then behind Precision Heat Treating, and there's a park there that goes up to Harrison. And I've noticed there's, in the gazebo there, there have been people, um, setting up camp there over the last couple of weeks with tarps and junk in there. And it's really scary. You, you can't enjoy going to the parks now. Um, you can't ride a bike or walk through there. You're approached for money or they holler at you and you don't know why. And um, it's not only in the city of Kalamazoo, it's spilled out throughout the county. It's gone into our townships. And litter is just everywhere. It's horrible. Um,
So I want to thank you for I want to thank you for coming down at this point. Your, your time is up, but there will be another opportunity at our regular meeting at seven o'clock, or you can call in for comments at that time. Thank you. Anyone else in the chambers? Don't start the clock yet. My name is Wendy Fields and I am a, a city resident. I'm here because uh, I have a safety issue and a safety concern. I attended the Juneteenth uh, event um, Sunday. Wonderful celebration. Everything really went well. My concern is that the um, borders that were put up or the barriers uh, that were put up uh, and I understand it was not a city request, but that the person that was uh, renting the space requested that. My ask of you is that you come up with a policy of some sort so that it is mandatory that two entrances be open at all times. There was one entrance that allowed people in and out, even those of us that had to unload our cars, some were unloading their things over the fence. Uh, there was not... Um, adequate space for cars to bag into to unload so the space that was given to us to unload uh, pedestrians were also walking there so you were constantly beeping to get them out of the way it was a serious serious safety issue and so I don't know what your policy is or what that looks like right now but I implore you to come up with something so that no matter who it is that's renting that space they at least have to have two entrances. I don't even know what would have happened if ambulance or something would have come in. I guess uh, if nothing else, you would have cut through the wiring. But please take that into consideration and um, consider implementing that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anyone else in the chambers that would like to uh, speak during public comments? Hi, uh, I'm Jack Urban. Uh, I live in Kalamazoo on Phillips Street in, in the south part of the city. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your con conduct of the Committee of the Whole meetings. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that you're, you're using them uh, to maximum effectiveness. Because um, um, uh, when you get to a, a business meeting, it's really important that you look like you know what you're doing. The, 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 the community is looking to you for leadership. It's not coming from Lansing, and it's sure not coming from Washington. We have a chance, pretty much as the speaker who was introduced to you talked about, we have a chance to set a model for how governance and community can be built, how good governance builds community. And it, it, you guys can set the example. So when, when you have, uh, for example, amendments that come up, uh, you need to, to uh, proceed with pro handling those in a, in a deliberate way. And I'm suggesting that unless you're uh, uh, positive, uh, everybody agrees instantly that there's no ramifications and no under misunderstandings involved with it, I suggest that you table the um, issue and bring it up at a subsequent meeting. Because the, the disorder that occurs while you're trying to deal with it. The last time this happened was a minor matter, but you can imagine if it was something more serious than fishing on the other side of Portage Creek. Uh, people look, are looking to you for leadership. 
And when you look like you don't understand what's happening, it's very discouraging and very anxiety producing. Um, so uh, I'm going to use up my time here. So I'm just going to give the clerk a handout I have. And this is even more frank than what I just said. Uh, I Thank you. Anyone else in the chambers this evening? See no one, DCM. Chamberlain, is there anyone who's called in? We'll go ahead and check. Looks like we have no call-in calls. Thank you uh, very much, DCM Chamberlain. No special agenda items, so we are to the work session portion of our Committee of the Whole meeting. DCM Lamb. Yes, uh, I'm actually going to turn it over to Deputy City Manager Jeff Chamberlain. He's going to give a brief introduction about our presentation and also introduce some guests we have today to walk us through. Uh, so with that, here's DCM Chamberlain. Thank you. Welcome again. start over. There we go. All right, sorry about that. Tonight at our Committee of the Whole meeting, we're really pleased to talk with the City Commission and the community, uh, have the ongoing discussion about the American Rescue Plan Act, or as you'll be hearing a lot of it called tonight, ARPA. Uh, and also, we wanted to keep talking with the Commission about how these funds fit in with not only the Foundation for Excellence that we have, but also the city's ongoing budget process. So as we look at long-term planning, as well as our immediate needs, as far as what's coming up for next year, um, we want to be able to keep explaining to the city commission how all these different pieces fit together. Uh, we know there's a lot of different pieces that are moving, um, especially when it comes to ARPA. Uh, the, this is a federal program with hundreds and hundreds of pages of rules that go along with those dollars. It's a, it's a great opportunity. Uh, but it is kind of complex, uh, but it's not unmanageable. And to help us manage that, we've brought in some excellent consult consultants who are working with other communities and are actually are working with some, uh, including ourselves, on be best practices. So what we want to do tonight is I'm going to introduce our consultants, uh, also our S S chief financial officer and management services director, Steve Vicenzi, is going to talk about our overall budget. And we'll also talk a little bit about Foundation for Excellence. So with that, I am going to introduce our team that we have from iParametrics. Uh, we have uh, Kennedy Shannon, and, and also we had Ben Reitfer. And they are going to start leading off with uh, giving us an overview of just kind of, again, how ARPA works, what it's eligible for, and kind of what some of the things that we as a city have to do to use the ARPA funds. So I'm going to turn it over to Kennedy, and thank you very much for being here. Welcome, thank you very much. Hello and good evening. My name is Kennedy Shannon. I am the Director of Long-Term Community Recovery with iParametrics. I am also the attorney for iParametrics and I, uh, my specialty is federal regulations. And so I've had the pleasure of working with your community as it relates to your ARPA allocation and I came to share a little information with you all today. So to start off, I want to talk about where it is that Kalamazoo stands in relation to some of the other cities around the country and their ARPA funding. 
as a firm, we represent about 25 plus cities, uh, counties, and states for ARPA to the tune of over half a billion dollars. So we kind of see the gamut of what communities are doing. And I must say that as it relates to similarly situated cities, you guys are pretty good. Um, and I base that off of the fact that as a community, you have your funding priorities identified as at least relates to your first disbursement. Not all communities have done that. You've cultivated strong partnerships with community partners, including the United Way and KidNet. Um, you've established process and procedures for your ARPA compliance, and you're thinking about it at the beginning of creating programming as opposed to thinking about it at the end of creating programming, which is important. In addition to that, you've identified effective projects and you've created program quality areas that you're reviewing projects up against. So you're not just kind of throwing things at the dartboard and seeing what sticks, but you're actually developing programs that meet the needs of your community. You're looking at things like your needs assessments and your community priorities to identify where is the best place to put your ARPA funding, which I think is the, the best way to be when you're looking at how do we spend these dollars to make transformative changes to our community because these are really once in a lifetime dollars that are coming to your community. Well, some of the best practices that are suggested by Treasury and that I, I suggest here are multi-year planning. Um, it's extremely important to plan your ARPA funding in a multi-year structure only because you, there's a clock ticking on your community to spend this money. And whatever you don't spend by 2026 has to go back to the Treasury. And nobody wants to send any money back to the federal government. I don't think that would be a good look at all. And so taking that into account, when you make your planning a multi-year plan, you know exactly where you're headed. You know exactly what programming it is as a community you want to do, and it gives you more control with trying to make sure that that money is spent by that date and that you're not stuck with funding that you've not allocated that has to be sent back to Treasury. And lastly, I encourage you to look at your ARPA programming through a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. And that's done through things like procurement, procuring with small businesses, minority-owned businesses to provide some of the goods and services that you're procuring with this ARPA funding. Um, and also looking at it through the programming, who these programs would serve. Um, serving your community's most vulnerable is, is what's actually recommended by the federal government and ARPA federal, sorry, ARPA federal regulations. As it relates to ARPA's allowable expense, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Ben Redford, and he will go over the, the um, categories for you. Hello, everyone. I just want to state that I am doing this at a 10,000-foot uh, uh, level. Um, so of the seven categories that I'll kind of be, or category groups that I'll be sum summarizing, uh, within them there are 83 expenditure categories and even some flexibility uh, within that. So um, the first we have public health and this really um, is a lot of you know direct response to COVID and some of those direct uh, health implications. Some of it is you know the basic of you know vaccine incentivization um, or you know getting incentivizing boosters or really you know supporting um, uh, community you know health uh, you know, um, incentivizing healthcare, and you know the two others that Treasury highlights, and we've seen a lot of clients do, are your uh, violence prevention, um, the mental health services, and the last would be supporting businesses uh, doing met, uh, mitigation work. 
um, then negative economic uh, impacts, and that is definitely where most of the programs that we're providing support for our clients fall under, and it includes a broad range of support uh, that includes uh, a variety of assistance to families, uh, which includes homeless support services, uh, financial assistance, childcare support, um, and then a broad range of support for directly for you know financial assistance to businesses that can be broad or targeted, um, as well as you know specific assistance to industries, as well as direct assistance to nonprofits. Nonprofits can be the ones putting on the grants, but they can also be the ones that need financial assistance. Um, and then public health negative economic impacts. That's really targeted at. Uh, you know, providing support, whether it be for hospitals needing to retain their workers or support for programs that are part of the government, uh, human, uh, you know, service aspects, um, providing increased pay, uh, various uh, aspects to, you know, retain those workers. And I will slide it over to the next set. And then uh, premium pay um, allows for, I believe, you know, certain projects have already been done in that category, uh, limited uh, projects uh, within Kalamazoo, um, but it allows you know, flexibility to provide financial assistance to workers that have been, you know, whether responding to COVID or providing other uh, extra work. Um, and then infrastructure, uh, Treasury really narrows down to focus on sewer, wastewater, uh, stormwater, and then broadband that increases uh, internet uh, access. Um, and then revenue replacement, uh, that is a slightly separate category than the rest, and it requires a calculator that we've been uh, consulting Kalamazoo on, on running, um, and it allows you to uh, replace uh, lost revenue and cover government services, but uh, that uh, does have the same limitation. You know, you remove some of the ARPA requirements of it fitting in a specific category, but you're still required to meet a, a short list of, of general requirements for all, all funds that come through uh, ARPA, as well as all uh, two CFR and uniform guidance, which we'll get into in a second. Um, so you have some flexibility, but it's not completely open as what you can do with that. And then the last is administration, which covers uh, consultants, analysis of various projects, as well as a portion of salary for the individuals that are working on ARPA within your staff. So with that, I will hand it back over to Kennedy. Cool. Thank you, Ben. So as Ben stated, with each of those categories, there are certain strings attached to those federal dollars, and they are governed by 2 CFR, which is the Code of Federal Regulation. And this applies to any federal funding, regardless of the source. And as it relates to ARPA, there are really four main categories that we need to focus on. And this applies to funding that you're using through revenue recovery or any of the other um, funding categories that have been discussed. The first one is procurement. Anything purchased, be a good or service, has to be procured using the federal requirements under ARPA. So for the most part, that's getting three bids, going with the most reasonable bid. That's how we define what is reasonable as far as cost is concerned. So everything must be procured correctly according to 2 CFR Part 200. The second thing is that it must be reasonable and allowable. So say, for instance, if you did a small business grant, 
and your small business applied and they lost $2,000 as it relates to COVID. You can't then go and give them a $50,000 grant because it's not reasonable and proportionate to the impact of COVID that they experienced. So we have to keep that in mind too whenever we're using these particular dollars that we're doing something that's reasonable and, and impactful. Secondly, we have to check for debarment. We have to make sure that the organizations and businesses that we do business with have not been debarred from the federal government and that they've not had money given to them and taken away from them at any point. And that's why we require every organization to have a SAM.gov number. And what that is, it's almost like a social security number for your business by way in which the government keeps track of your business and your practices of contracting with the government. And last but not least, but most importantly, is your subrecipient monitoring. Every dollar of this funding that you give to someone else to implement a program for you comes with all of those strings attached. So whatever the city's responsibilities are, they didn't pass on to that secondary organization. So it's extremely important that when you're having subrecipients, that you're choosing people who have the capacity and the knowledge to have a federal grant and know what that entails because if they don't do what they're supposed to do on their end, it ultimately relates to you all sending money back to Treasury because you're on the hook for that money even though you've given it to another organization. A best practice is trying to keep your subrecipients to a limited number because it takes a lot to, to monitor a subrecipient. Um, it's almost like babysitting, right? You want to make sure that they're procuring things, right? That they're checking for debarment. And if they're not doing any of that and you get a finding, then you all will have to pay that money back and send it back to Treasury. And although it may be the fault of the subrecipient, it ultimately will bear with you all. And, you know, nobody wants that. So it's extremely important to know that, um, especially with revenue recovery, like Ben said, there is a little bit more leeway in what you can do with your dollars, but these four federal requirements attach regardless of the pot of money that you're going to use, okay? Awesome. Jeff? Oh, it's going to Steve. Yeah. All right, on the right side. Okay, so. I'm Steve Asenzi, City CFO. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how we've been starting to plan for using ARPA dollars internally as a city and kind of highlight some of our budget priorities. Um, so kind of starting here, we have our community priorities that have fit into ARPA. These were derived from IK 2025, our 10-year plan, along with community surveys and other information. Um, they were developed um, with commission in 2021. And then we came back this last February at your spring retreat and kind of reaffirmed these five priority areas of youth, housing, infrastructure, economic development, and um, also using safety program quality factors. Uh, so going to the next slide here, these are our overall program quality factors. We apply them to our ARPA requests and projects and programs, along with all of our other city budget requests that come in. Um, so these, you know, eight different priority areas really help factor in, you know, when we're looking at prioritizing our programming and how we go about doing that. This allows us to get away from that gut feeling of, hey, this is a good program and actually prove statistically which programs fit within IK2025 and also, you know, these other program quality factors to make sure that we're putting out the highest and best use of all the dollars that we use. 
And then finally here, just have a summary of you know, some of the programs that have been approved to date. Um, this does not include anything coming to commission tonight, um, but you can see here where we've programmed about 10 and a half million, leaving us with a little less than 29 million left to program. And this is how they fit in on the right side here within those five priority areas. Um, and so you can see there where we have the multiple that went through the United Way allocation. That allocation went through 14 different organizations and 17 different grants fitting within mostly the housing, youth, and economy area. So you can kind of, we can kind of go back at the end and allocate that out as those funds are spent and put out into the community. Um, and then just kind of want to give one final reminder here of, you know, where we are in the overall phase of ARPA, you know, the final rule came out in January of this year. So we haven't had the final rule document for all that long. And just, look, and just to kind of re-highlight what Deputy City Manager Chamberlain said, that rule is 450 pages. So there is a lot of detail and a lot of compliance that has to go into these funds as Kennedy and Ben just kind of went over for you. Um, and then that rule went into effect in April. So really, as we're moving forward, it looks like we have a lot to spend. We do, um, but we're really entering our first full budget process with these funds available. And we'll be working towards creating a full four-year plan and working with commission through that. Now I'm gonna turn it over here to FFE manager, Steve Brown, to kind of talk about ARPA and FFE fitting together. Good evening, Mayor Anderson and commissioners. I've prepared a few remarks this evening to speak about ARPA in context of the Foundation for Excellence Endowment. And just for a reminder uh, for viewers, if uh, they didn't, haven't seen before, my name is Steve Brown. I'm the manager of the Foundation for Excellence here uh, in the city manager's office. Um, again, just a brief reminder, the purpose of the FFV, it was created in 2017 to lower taxes for all city taxpayers to stabilize the city's budget long term and to fund aspirational projects in the city. Um, the way the FFE works is that people of any kind can give a gift of any size to the FFE endowment, and that's invested so that interest each year is granted to the city in support of its overall Imagine Kalamazoo goals and general purposes. Um, to date, we have invested at the end of this year, it'll be about $150 million in the city. Very, very significant investment. Uh, but we all recognize that even with that historical investment, much of the work that we do is ongoing and we can all really foresee that it, it won't have an end in sight. So this is affordable housing, this is economic development, this is youth development, this is infrastructure. Uh, these are not projects that, that um, we're gonna see the back of really anytime soon. And so it's crucial that we keep in mind the long-term needs and the sustainability for the tools that we choose in order to pay for those long-term needs. Uh, as it's been mentioned this evening, ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act dollars, though significant, are one time and do have a sunset. So we have some interesting questions to ask ourselves as a city, as a community, about how those are spent. And a major question there is, of course, balancing long-term sustainability with what are perceived to be and are, you know, in point of fact, urgent current needs that can be addressed. So there's a very specific uh, topic that I wanted to bring up this evening. And the principle is quite simple. We all know it from our own household budgets and we all know it if we've invested at all uh, in our own retirement, is the more dollars you have invested, the longer, the more money you're gonna have in the end. And so we have an opportunity, commission has an opportunity to consider the following. 
is that if we're able to keep 28 million extra dollars, this is just a projection, invested in the endowment over the next four years, that would in 2040 yield potentially $100 million for the endowment. And as a reminder, the only reason the endowment exists is to grant money to the city in support of the vision of the people of Kalamazoo to make Kalamazoo a better place for everyone in perpetuity. So the opportunity here is to really highlight the fact that commission has already chosen, in a sense, its premier tool for helping the city long term. This goes back to the long-term structural budget issues that plagued the city for over a decade, and FFE was created to help resolve in 2015, 2016, and 2017, and again has invested historical, unprecedented resources in the city. That tool has been created, and ARPA offers a unique opportunity to help bolster that. And it can do so by helping to offset FFE spending during the ARPA period. Now, I appreciate that that needs to be balanced, of course, with uh, other urgent needs. But I would encourage Commission to really take seriously the fact that every dollar we save of FFE now has a very calculable upside in the future, which allows us to continue investing in all of the projects that we know the city is going to need really for the foreseeable future. Long after our careers uh, and, and even lives are over, you know, we're investing in the future of the children and grandchildren of Kalamazoo. So it's a different take on ARPA, but I really wanted to foreground that to make sure that you understood the, the math behind it and the, the concept behind it. Um, I'm happy to go deeper. We're all going to be available for comments once this, once this section is over. So just wanted to put that out there now. And with that, I'll hand it back to CFO Steve Vicenzi. And actually, with that, we are at the uh, portion of the presentation where we can kind of pause here, take questions, have discussion. Um, so I'll kind of yield the floor here to the commission. Thank you very much. I appreciate it for everyone who's here this evening. Uh, I, I was just wondering, uh, just before we start on that, it was, you know, just because the print is small, it's probably hard for most folks to see that budget page, uh, Steve, that totals to the ten and a half million there. Uh, do you want to just hit a couple of high points there in terms of maybe some of the larger spending categories? Sure, absolutely. So I'll kind of go back here. Um, so kind of going through the priority areas, you know, if we can start with housing. You know, we've um, allocated $1.5 million to housing programs directly, um, particularly the biggest portion of that being our housing for all, uh, which runs through our community planning economic development department. Um, you know, next year we have a stormwater assess condition assessment, which is important to our overall infrastructure, which you know, kind of plays along with our water and wastewater utility systems. And, you know, when you think about overall investment in our infrastructure, it's, that could be a, an extremely useful tool in future planning. Um, moving on here, we've programmed one, a little over 1.5 million to overall community safety um, between two different categories here. Uh, we have our emergency management coordinator and community violence intervention. And then finally, and then next year we've got $1 million to youth. Um, and then on top of that tonight, you will be also be considering another $500,000 allocation um, through one of the items that will be on the agenda at 7 o'clock. And then moving on here, we have currently we have projected about $4.5 million in revenue replacement for our parking fund and our streets funds. Those are two funds that were directly impacted by COVID. Um, 
you know, as you look back for those two years, we didn't have downtown, a lot of downtown parking because no one was coming into work. We were all working from home as much as possible. And people also weren't driving, which significantly reduced um, revenues through the gas tax. And so, the, you know, right now that total number is a projection. Um, where the first year of the 2022 budget, you know, that's a real number based on the calculation included in the um, interim final rule that was administered last year by the federal government. And actually that number will potentially increase given the new final rule as they increase their overall um, percentage for revenue replacement from four to five percent. And then, and then sec next here, we have our good governance section, which talks about our overall compliance, um, some of our internal city needs as it relates to COVID um, items, including, you know, IT infrastructure management. Um, we put that here in good governance is that really, during COVID, a lot more things happen online. So we needed to kind of bolster our IT infrastructure and that kind of all feeds into that. And then lastly, we have that $1.1 million allocation to the United Way that I discussed earlier that is kind of a mix of mu um, multiple categories. Th thanks very much, Steve, for going over that again. I appreciate that. So, uh, commissioners, now is an opportunity to ask questions of anyone who is here on the team presenting this topic tonight. Are there any questions? Yeah, Commissioner Pradel. I have a couple questions for the iParametrics team, if, if you don't mind. Um, thank you so much for the presentation. It was great to have you here uh, to share some information. Uh, learned a lot from your presentation, so thank you. <clears throat> I know one of the things that the commission has somewhat grappled with is trying to remain committed to our to DEI and as a fundamental tenet of, of everything we do. Uh, and we ran into this situation recently as, a, as KidNet is a good example <clears throat> where community was telling us, hey, some of the people who have the greatest grasp <clears throat> could make the greatest impact with youth or gun violence are sometimes not a nonprofit that has, you know, an annual audit and, you know, a compliance manager and those sort of things. And so I guess the question, if you could kind of just help us talk that through and figure out like, how do we balance that? How do we make sure that, you know, somebody who doesn't have a compliance manager and annual audit but can make great, great impact, who has, I guess you could say, the, the knowledge, maybe not the capacity, of how to make impact. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and I think actually the KidNet example is a good example. So although the federal government is very stern in what its requirements are, there are ways to get around it, not erasing the compliance aspect, but as we did in KidNet, right? We had organizations that were not 5013Cs partner with 5013Cs to be their fiduciary. And in doing that, not only are we making sure that that organization can get federal funding by making that partnership, but we're also increasing that organization's capacity because now they know what it means to get federal funding. And once they go through that process one time and they fill out all the required paperwork and they get that SAM.gov number, they can then go after federal funding themselves and they're already equipped to do so. So by us making them partner with the fiduciary, we're not eliminating them or not allowing them to participate we're just making sure that the safeguard is there in order to get the information that the federal government needs to have on the back end. And I think that was a way in which we compromised and we worked around what the federal requirements were so that we could work with those organizations, like you said, that weren't necessarily structured as a 5013C, but maybe a local neighborhood organization who does great work and who, who should get funding 
to continue great work for the youth of Kalamazoo, but in doing it in such a way that it meets federal requirements, if that makes sense, Commissioner. Uh, I also really appreciated, you know, you sharing some best practices or like recommendations that you have. I wrote a bunch of those down as well, or all those down. <clears throat> but one of them that you mentioned that really resonated with me is the multi-year planning. Yes. There, there is no doubt in my mind that especially nonprofits are going to have a rough go the next few years. You know, you're going to have foundations that are starting to contract their giving, you know, maybe not doing multi-year grant giving, maybe giving less amounts to each individual as the stock market's taking a tumble. We're entering a recession. You know, you're going to have a lot of individual donors who are going to, you know, tighten their, their bootstraps a little bit as they have uncertainty going into recession. Inflation is high. Gas prices are high. And so can you speak a little bit about that in terms of when you're talking about multi-year planning, would that have been like a, a good example of where when we were working with KidNet, maybe instead of it going into like a one-year, hey, we're going to do it this summer, or what you're, or what you're saying, what, what would be a best practice would be to say, hey, KidNet, we want to guarantee three years worth of support, you know, from now through 2020, you know, four or 2025 or whatever to support you. Is that like an example or? So what I mean by my, my multi-year planning is knowing where you want to spend your money for the next three to four years, right? Some communities do it on an annual basis. And when you do it on an annual basis, I think you kind of lock yourself into the fact that that last year, you may not spend all of your money. And against everybody's good intention, sometimes it's extremely difficult to spend money. And the fact that there's a clock attached to this money and that it goes back to treasury. So when you have a multi-year plan to say, for instance, we're gonna spend X amount of dollars over the next three years for this and for this and for this, you know where you're going, you know you can create touch points to check to make sure your spending is allowing, aligning to where it should be to make sure that you have a complete spend down by 2026 because you guys lose the ability to allocate that money December 2024. So whatever's left in your account after December 2024, you can't move it. It just sits there for until 2026. You can't reallocate it to anything else. So whatever it was allocated for at that particular point in time, they have to spend that money on that particular purpose by 2026. So doing it on an annual basis, I think just kind of sets a lot of communities up for failure because that last year, you don't know what's going to happen and then you're stuck with all this money and it's, you know, you're sending money back. So that's what I mean by having a multi-year multi-year planning aspect. So in relation to KidNet, if you wanted to fund youth programs, not just KidNet, but youth programs in general, and you said, we want to fund this over the next three years, we'll put X amount of dollars over the next year, three years, to fund youth programs. And then you will determine which youth programs you'll fund at that point. But at least you'll know the buckets of money that you've set aside and the categories for which you're going to fund and nobody has to guess that, right? You've already got that budgeted, and then you figure out who within the community you're gonna give it to, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you're not saying multi-year plan for an organization, so yeah. you're saying like just- Absolutely. Commit to youth strategies for three years, a million dollars per year. Exactly, sort of infrastructure. Hmm. We're gonna spend X amount of dollars every year for infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna do a mental health programs, X amount of dollars for mental health programs. And then you can do an internal grant competition for nonprofit organizations to compete for those mental health dollars. Mm -hmm. Create a program with this parameter in mind, right? We want a mental health program that's going to help the youth of Kalamazoo, you know, from qualified census tracts, the most impacted. Present us a program and a budget, and we will review that, and we will give funding to the most adequate proposals. I think that's the fairest way to do it. And it, it creates ingenuity within the community to come up with programs to address the concerns that you currently are having with your community. 
And just one comment I want to make, uh, kind of tying what uh, Kennedy uh, said is, you know, we kind of call it a needs-based approach. You know, identify what the need is, and then figure out how how to meet that need. And you know, while you know a lot of what we do is ARPA eligibility, we regularly will be like, oh. I know a project that we're doing somewhere else where we can make what you're doing more efficient by doing X and doing Y. So half of why you guys have us is for that eligibility. The other half is for hearing your great ideas and us being, Helping how can you we come make up those, with those better? Programs. Sure, awesome. Thank you, Kennedy and, and Ben, and uh, okay. just save some space for my colleagues, but I do have a question for us as a group once we circle around again. Thank you. Other questions, commissioners? Yes, Commissioner Hoffman. Thank you so much. Uh, nice to meet you, Kennedy and Ben. I have a question for um, manager, the FFE manager, in reference to um, the scenario you, you kind of presented. Can you go in a little bit further in reference to what you talked about, if there was 28 million, what that looks like, and, mm. and how would we do that? Yeah, so the background, broadly speaking, is that the FFE will grant dollars to the city so that it spends it on its programs and can actualize uh, grant partnerships with external partners such as United Way in one particular case. Now, if those dollars move from the FFE endowment to the city, that's a one-way street, right? They end up at the city and those are spent. Um, if dollars are not removed from the endowment, they continue earning interest in that, in that corpus of money. And these are very big numbers we talk about. We received recently the $400 million commitment over 10 years. And just to reiterate, that wasn't a one-time gift. So we're receiving $40 million over a 10-year period for the FFE endowment. And that's building slowly. And as people are seeing with the market, it's a very volatile time in history. And with inflation added onto that, we're all hoping for the best, but we're trying to brace ourselves for the worst as well. You'll hear that really from any, uh, any investment advisor or any kind of endowment manager. So back to the idea of the scenarios, is that every dollar we don't have to pull out of the endowment is a, is, you know, a dollar plus that we're earning. And the way that that could be done now through with FFE and ARPA is that funds that would have typically gone to project, projects for FFE could just be spent with ARP, by using ARPA dollars. And the way that we do that is, in a sense, very um, is very uncomplicated, very kind of unglamorous. It's just a matter of budgeting different dollars in different columns. Um, having said that, I do know that a dollar spent on A is maybe a dollar not spent on B. Um, so we have to, you know, take the broad array of projects that are being uh, requesting funding in any given year, and look at those intelligently. Look at how they've scored in the special request process, and then make those decisions accordingly. I would add into this the fact that there's a certain amount of capacity the city will have at any given moment to do work. Um, so for example, if, we, if, if the city was to do a million dollars of projects this year, wouldn't it be better if we did $10 million of projects this year? It would, except that you have to have staff, you have to have the purchasing pipeline, you have to have all the legal agreements. The tremendous amount of work that goes into making any project real. So there is always that capacity limit that the city's gonna have. And we wanna take that into account. Um, if we're going to talk about granting dollars to external organizations, that can be very positive, um, but we also have to consider the fact that in the number of plans that the city has of its own, the Imagine Kalamazoo plan, the seven existing neighborhood plans, which involve, you know, working with neighborhoods to define their needs on a block-by-block, house-by-house level, 
um, our sustainability plan, our parks and rec plan. We have a tremendous scope of need already in the city. So again, I'm not, I'm not trying to persuade. I just want to make a case from the FFE perspective to make sure that you all are informed with that information uh, and it's factors into your thinking as, as a city commission. Um, as a board member as well of the Foundation for Excellence, so I'll say Director Hoffman as well. Um, from your perspective, wearing that FFE hat, the, really the one responsibility as a board member of the FFE is to ensure the, the sustainability and viability of that endowment. So I think that those two, those two things come very much into conversation here. Um, and again, it's all part of one kind of budgeting um, conversation, I'd say. So. Thank you for that. And, and have you ever done the, if we could, what would be the outcome? Have you all even gotten to that place, like if we were able to kind of substitute more money around and, and keep it into the endowment within the next four years, we will have gained, you know, just a, a range, not because we know it's volatile, but. It is volatile at the extreme, like I said, uh, the actual number would be, so if we, if, if we saved $7 million a year from FFE, so that'd be $28 million over four years. And if we instead spent $28 million of ARPA dollars, at 2040, that would be projected in at least one scenario to be about $100 million in the endowment. And then, if you, you know, it's if you zero, if you go back towards zero, those numbers come down, of course. So, other questions, commissioners? Commissioner Pradle. This is a question for us. So, I think I'm going to go there. <laughs> so, all right. So here's where I'm fundamentally struggling, and I thought a lot about this the last couple of weeks. So let's say hypothetically, there's a five-year-old child who's grown up in poverty, has abuse in the home, spent really the first couple of years of his life in a virtual environment without normal socialization. That five-year-old by 2040 is gonna be 23 years old. What happens if we don't adequately invest in that five-year-old today and he doesn't receive the mentorship, the positive outlets, the mental health support, the, the wraparound support to make that young person successful? What cost will that be on that young man, his family, his children, this community? I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I work with people who are some of the most vulnerable low-income individuals in our community on a daily basis. They are not in a place to look at their financial uh, circumstances and say, today I'm gonna invest $1,000 for my paycheck in, in Berkshire Hathaway because, you know, what they're worried about is am I gonna be able to pay for my groceries? I can't pay my gas at the tank. And I like in that same perspective that we still live in a community where 30% of people live in the poverty, uh, under the poverty level, right? So our community still has a long way to go in terms of investing in our people so that our people have a positive output outcome in the future. I guess what I'm trying to say is like the cost of not investing in our people today, there will be greater costs on us in terms of turbulence and challenges in the future if we don't invest those today. So I don't know if I'm making any sense with this. And is that, and, and I'm not trying to, I mean, we have some of the smartest, brightest, most brilliant people who work for us. Steve, 
uh, you know, and, and, and Steve, you know, I mean, in terms of coming forward to this and having the foresight, because yeah, great budgeting would say to you, take, you know, $28 million and turn it to $100 million in 2040. But what opportunity costs are we missing in today's present to precipitate a less burdensome future tomorrow? And so I, I guess I would really challenge us to think that through and consider the most immediate challenges that could precipitate themselves 18 years down the road if we don't tackle them today at the very least. You know, maybe there is an opportunity to, to do what, somewhat of what they're describing uh, with some of the funds, but, you know, push their foot on the gas a little harder on some of the areas like youth and gun violence and mental health support services and initiatives. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Commissioner Prado. So I just want to remind folks who are watching, everybody's here in the chambers, is that uh, this presentation was not made to us for a uh, decision tonight. So we're not setting the table for, for voting on something. This is our committee of the whole work. And so it's an opportunity for discussion, but we're not leading towards a motion or anything along those lines. So I, I, I know that that's... I know that's clear to you, Commissioner uh, Prado, but uh, suggesting, you know, how best to think about this opportunity we have in terms of current spending and future spending and savings for the future and all that. So along those lines, I just want to make sure that there's an understanding. We are we're not uh, debating towards the decision here, but have an opportunity to discuss. Commissioner Juarez, were you intending to say anything? Okay. Anyone else? Any questions? We won't, on a regular basis, have these good people in the room with us, and so I don't want to lose this opportunity, you know, to ask some questions. So uh, even if it seems like something perhaps a little insignificant right now, I just want to make sure that we take advantage of the expertise we do have here in the room. I, I will just say, I, I think Commissioner has you thinking about that, from my own personal experience working at ISK and looking at the initial rules that came out, which I read through, which were 150 pages long, and then that period of time that has, where, where the rules are more fully written and what they are now, uh, even though uh, maybe there has been some concern, even on my part, like why are we sitting on this money? Why haven't we spent it already? I, I think that we are now finding ourselves in a situation where Thank you, administration, for bringing in some expertise here in, in iParametrics and uh, the good advice that we're getting from Kennedy and Ben, and I'm sure some of their team members are backing them up to make sure that we spend this money in an appropriate way, uh, that we don't have concerns that will accrue to later commissions if there's, uh, we find ourselves in some sort of clawback or payback kind of a situation, and that we really do now that we are cognizant of the rules that they are with the CFR requirements, that we have a very careful and thoughtful spending plan that will take us through that last penny being out the door by December of uh, 26, right? So uh, really, I appreciate your assistance and uh, what you are bringing to the table here. Any other questions? This Commissioner Hess. Yeah, and it, this may be insignificant, but Kennedy, you were speaking of giving grants from the city to 
uh, things like Kidnet or the United would would these grants go through the city or through a fiduciary like United Way um, when people will apply for um, some of the ARPA dollars? So that would be the prerogative of the city. You could directly do it through the city if you have capacity, but in some instances where you may not have capacity, you could go through United Way and have United Way, which would then be a sub-recipient of the city, and then anybody that's uh, United Way gives funding to will either be a beneficiary if they are the intended organization, or if they're giving money to another organization, you can have a sub-sub-recipient relationship. So I know it gets kind of confusing, but it just depends on what you guys feel comfortable and what you feel your capacity is to run in-house versus partnering with an organization that already has that structure in place, already has those connections in the community, and already has the processes in place, and they know how to use federal funding like the United Way. Yeah. Um, I think that saves a lot of time and money sometimes when you just partner with organizations like that. Okay, thank you. And, and I just want to say thank you for letting us know that we're more advanced than similarly situated cities. <laughs> I just want to put that, I mean, that's good news. So okay, Zoo. <laughs> thank you. Commissioner Hoffman. Thank you again. Um, Kennedy, you and Ben, what you said today was I had no clue, so knowing that the money has to be uh, earmarked by December 2024 is huge. I think some of us were thinking that we had through 2026. So just that nugget changes the game. And as it pertains to, uh, one thing I love about what you guys said is um, that it should be spent looking through a, a lens of DEI and it should reach our most vulnerable population. And I think when we talk about on the dais, the urgency, we've been hearing urgent, urgency since the pandemic, everything is urgent, right? And so when I hear that, I think it's, it's, it is imperative that we do it through a DEI lens and that there is a process where our BIPOC individuals and organizations have the access uh, to get the work done. And so I, I just wanted to appreciate you for saying that through this DEI lens and the urgency has been there, it will continue to be there. I just wanna make sure that as a city government that we are in, intentional and, and that we are being um, as courageous as we can as we do this work and get the money put out into the community to do the work. Thank you. You're welcome, thank you. Any other questions at this time from commission? Seeing no one, DCM Lamb, anything else? But wait, there's more. Uh, CFO Vicenzi is gonna now kind of turn to the 2023 budget process um, and kind of walk us through and we'll have some more time for questions as it relates to uh, what we've got coming ahead for this year's, but for this next year's budget. All right, sounds great. Take it away. One second, this team do have stopped working. <laughs> Shelby, do you have the rest of Shelby, you have any help over there? Apologies for that. All right, so as uh, WCM Manager Lamb just discussed, I'm going to kind of go through our budgeting process a little bit and kind of where we are current year to date. Um, so kind of starting here, kind of high level, you know, general purpose of governmental budgeting. You know, I'm just gonna hit a few of these points on this slide, you know, 
big, big parts of it here are, you know, demonstrating transparency and accountability with public funds. There's nothing more important that we do than being open and honest with what we're spending on and making sure we're doing it to the highest and best possible use that we can. Um, you know, we want to continue to promote stakeholder participation in the process. Um, one of my coming slides, I'll kind of get into some of the details on that here. Um, and then we also want to educate city commission. So as these items are coming back to you throughout the year, you're educated and you're comfortable that these items are part of a plan, part of our budget, part of what we've been planning to do for a long time and not just, you know, off the top of our head. Um, we want you guys to be prepared and comfortable when these items come back. And we also want to, you know, invest our public resources responsibly to continue to advance our community vision and our long-term plan in IK 2025, which will in short order be IK 2035 or some iteration. Um, kind of getting in further here to the rules and responsibilities within our budget. You know, you guys are at the top. You're affirming our budget vision and purpose. You know, you're prioritizing our action plans. You're setting us up for our future vision. You know, and then we have our city manager who, you know, prepares and recommends the budget to the commission. He's working on our midterm and long, ways to achieve our midterm and long-term goals. And he's doing that through staff. You know, city staff is the one who are here every day working on these plans and these projects on the day-to-day -day basis. Um, this is even further driven home here. We have a slide here from, that comes from ICMA, um, which is the International City County Management Association. Um, that just really shows you here where you start on the left of this slide with kind of purpose and vision and you kind of see at the bottom there with the green lines you know that that's really the, the strong point of commission's role and you know and as you continue down through strategic goals priority action items you see where commission's role decreases a little bit and staff's role continues to increase down to where you get to like that day-to-day -day work that i was just discussing where it's staff that are really putting together those day-to-day -day plans those day-to-day -day projects and then we're coming back to you to approve those expenses. And so that's where the roles kind of flip as you kind of go through, um, kind of get from high level down to the runway here on the example. And then kind of how do we do that internally here? You know, we start here with, you know, our 10 year plans, which includes our strategic vision and our master plan through IK 2025. Um, you know, this information, all of these plans here are informed through community surveys, neighborhood meetings, other public meetings that we host, um, and our designated boards that do a lot of work day to day. I think the city has somewhere close to 30 designated boards that, that meet on a volunteer basis that help inform this work of the city. Um, you know, kind of moving down, it's listed here as five year. Not all of these plans are exactly five year plans, but there are, you know, that next level down with a little bit more detail. Um, you're looking at your you know, your parks and rec plans, your neighborhood plans. Um, and then from there, the departments are taking those plans and figuring out what's the best way to program our annual budget to achieve those goals and those plans. And that's really how we get down from that really high level vision down to the day-to-day -day budget that we bring to you every year. Um, and then just kind of walking you through the timeline of that. So this, this is kind of always a, uh, fun part because we're already part way through the year, no matter where we start here. So this year, kind of looking back, we start, you know, really with that commissioner retreat that we talked about in February. That's where we kind of come to you, reaffirm some of our goals, some of our plans, as we kind of ramp up and get ready for our special request process and how we go through and really organizing our thoughts and what we want to do and what we can do with the funding and the capacity that we have at, at hand. Um, and so that's where we come into May with those departments have put together their plans, they've put them on paper, 
you know, they bring them to my department, we put them all in, they get ranked um, internally based on those program quality factors and community priority factors that we talked about during ARPA. And then in June and July, that's when we're really trying to work through the finalization of that plan because, you know, we get a lot of ideas, you know, a lot of them rank really well, and then there's kind of always that final filter of, you know, what do we have the capacity to do and the ability to do um, beyond just what ranked well, and how do we organize that, not into just a one-year plan, but a three- to five-year plan. Um, and then we also work with our departments moving on in August to kind of go away from just those special projects to the day-to-day -day work, and that's what we kind of work through our budgets and our operations plan. Um, then September, you know, we're working through kind of another round of revenue projections to make sure that we're going to have the money that we expect to have. You know, the, the closer we get to the end of the year, the more we can fine-tune that, and then that circles back around and informs our general budget. But also at that same time, we're, we're working with the FFB with our special requests to find the best pot of money to pay for these different projects and programs. And so then the FFB board gets their portion of the plan to kind of look at and approve. Um, and then we move, you know, and we continue to work that process. You know, in October, the city manager and his team are finalizing their final touches on the overall budget from the operations plan, from the special requests, make sure that our debt plan also fits within everything we're trying to do. And then they can turn it back over to my team in November to kind of start working on that formal document, which, you know, now it's electronic, it's online. You know, if you ever print it out, it's like a mini textbook every year. So there's a lot of work that goes into kind of those final touches as well over the final weeks in November before it comes to you in December. And I guess I do want to pause here too. Kind of a new step we're trying to really fit in this year. You know, we want to get more commission involvement. We want to get your involvement earlier. So as November rolls around, it's also the time in, in the odd number of years where we're coming in after an election. You know, we, we're going to be working as administration to work with commissioners to kind of help set us on the right course as we work towards that February work session. So as we're kind of finalizing one year's budget, we're working on the following year's budget with you to kind of help narrow those goalposts for us to make sure that we're heading in the right direction. So that's a step we really want to take this year and really spend some extra time on. And I think every year we've always tried to improve this process, and I think we have been. So that's just one more step of improvement that we want to work on with you as commission. And then kind of circling back to the current year budget, you get that December 1st, which gives you time to review it. We have an open work session the, sec the first the second Monday in December, sorry, the first open Monday. Um, and then that's where the public also gets their first look at it. We have department com departments come and present their work plans for the year, their projects, kind of helps inform you and educate you on exactly what's in that budget. And that's where then in January we come back with a public hearing and then final approval before the end of January. So that's really our budget timeline kind of really condensed. There's a lot of other steps and work that goes on by staff throughout that whole process, but. As you can see, it never quite stops. <laughs> um, then just kind of want to highlight from where we are today, you know, kind of some of our next steps here. You know, obviously we're in the middle of our 2023 budget process. We're working through those special requests. Um, we've received them from the departments. We're working on the details, we're working on rating those, working on organizing that so as we move forward, we can, like I said, I always go back to, we can try to program it in the highest and best use possible for the dollars we do have. Um, and then also this year, kind of something, you know, that's not a normal recurring thing. Because of the timing of ARPA, we really want to come back where we've prioritized some mid-year requests that we think we can get moving off the ground this year. So we're hoping that 
you know, in August we can bring back to you um, some re additional ARPA requests for approval outside of our normal budget process to kind of speak to the urgency that we've talked about with getting these dollars out the door and getting them within the community. Um, that's not something we would normally do, but like I said, we got that final rule back in January. We really wanted to push hard to try to bring something back to get some of those dollars flowing this year. And so and that's the end of my slide, so I will leave it open for questions, comments, discussion. Questions, commissioners. Seeing at this point, would you expand a little bit on the one new item you mentioned, Steve, which is talking about 24, which can be a little confusing as we're, you know, right on the cusp there of approving a 23 budget. So maybe just a little more on how you imagine that being tied into that process. I told them if, if it's my idea, I get stuck with the hard questions, so I'm going to try to go that way. Um, I think what we've heard loud and clear from this commission in particular is how much we want to be involved. And I think what we found as staff is to give your best ideas the best chance for success, you need a little bit of runway. You need some time. Oftentimes, discussions might lead us to ideas that might come out this fall while we're thinking budget. But really, by this fall, if you hear the process that's, that, that Steve just went through, we're really on the finishing edges. And as much as we try to push our organization to move as quickly as we can, we know what it's like to steer a big ship and try to turn. So part of the thinking behind having a conversation in November while we're trying to finalize the 23 budget is to get you all an opportunity to engage with staff, getting our sights on the next budget. That gives us more runway, more of a chance to engage, give staff a time to vet ideas, as well as to come forward with you all after we've had a chance to do an inventory of our community commitments through our neighborhood plans to say where we think we're trending and to check in again. So whereas before, you, you might have a situation where the commission first sees a draft budget uh, at the end of the year, we are now looking at a February retreat for us to check in on priorities, then a, a late in the year check in on the following year, as well as kind of monitoring and giving input on the year in the past. So the sequence we're trying to hope for is right now, 22, we're doing the work, we're preparing for 23, and we need to be planning for 24. And I realize I can feel a bit discombobulating, but the goal in mind is the impact and the transformation that you all want to see. We got to commit to taking the time to give those ideas a chance for success. And that's the hope for the November check-in. Um, and then, then we then come back around in February to do further refining before our whole uh, organization starts to go for 24 budget requests. Very helpful. I, I think. Uh Obviously, we've heard something about this uh, prior to this meeting, but, but it is a new way of thinking. And uh, one thing I do really appreciate about what addresses is that sometimes you get to that really what is the end of a long, long budgeting process for the next year. You're on the cusp of that next year starting. And then that's when you get focused on that and say, oh, wait a second, maybe we should be doing this in 23, even though that isn't where we've been building. Certainly, there's always flexibility, but the idea to also redirect that attention to thinking, we're not just thinking one year at a time, is there something really important we have now recognized we should be thinking about in advance for 24? And I really appreciate your explanation on that, DCM Lamb. Commissioner Pradel. I was just wondering, just had a couple questions. One of them was, why do we as a city approve our budget in January when technically the fiscal year starts January 1? Is there a reason that's always happened? It's in the charter. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And then the, the other thing I was going to ask you as well is in terms of, uh, well, I guess it's more of a comment as well, I guess. So one of the things I thought was really helpful about the retreat this year is that before you even opened it up to ideas and thoughts or whatnot, um, you, the city staff really did a great job of like sharing all the things that are in the queue, right? The things that you're working on, the visions that you have for that. And uh, so that way, that it gave us a chance to kind of inventory what progress is being made towards those five priorities or the goals that you know we set out for us as a city. So, all right. thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Pradle. Any other questions for the city team at this point? Back to you, DCM Lamb. Thank you. Last thing I want to do is just acknowledge CFO Vicenzi, uh, Carolyn Williams in the audience, our budget team. As you heard from our consultants, we know we still have work to do, but we're being recognized for setting up the right infrastructure. Even before we knew the rules were done, we know we had to move with impact, but move um, intentionally. And so I just really want to thank Steve, his team, Carolyn Williams. Uh, we've got a great foundation, and we can continue to build on that. So I'm, I'm grateful for their support and work on this. And with that, that concludes our presentation. Thank you. I definitely support those comments. We are now at the opportunity for commissioner comments during the Committee of the Whole. Just as a reminder for those watching there, our business meeting does start at 7, and there will be another opportunity for commissioner comments at the end of that meeting. Any comments for the Committee of the Whole meeting? Seeing none, we are adjourned. I'll see you again at 7. Thank you.